Bodhisattva. So this morning, with respect to this practice of settling the mind in its natural state, I'd like to highlight just for a couple of minutes the theme, the theme of observer participancy. And that is obviously when we're watching our own thoughts, images, emotions, and so forth, our very awareness is taking place within, a, within an integrated system. It's not like the awareness is here and then it's some independent system. We're just kind of peeking in on it objectively without any type of interference at all. Clearly, that's not the case. And so this is an awareness taking place within the space of the mind. The awareness itself is right there, um, entangled with that which we're observing. So it's just bound to be the case that the very act of observing thoughts, images, and so forth is bound to have an influence on that which we are observing. And a lot of you have commented on this in, your, in the meetings you've had with me individually, that when you observe thoughts, that the sheer act of observing them seems to make them go away. They just go poof you know, upon, upon examination, almost as, as if you were trying to examine snowflakes with a magnifying glass, with the sun right over your, right over your shoulder, you know, and focusing so as soon as the magnifying glass is on the snowflake, of course, it melts. So it's quite something like that. To understand it a little bit, when we're thinking something, then the attention is focused just normally, when we're thinking about something, anyway. The attention is focused on the referent of the thought. So if I invite you to think, well, what does your home look like? What kind of a car do you have? Etc. If pretty much anything, the attention goes off to the referent, the car, the home, and it approaches it by way of your memories, your ideas, images, discursive thoughts, and so forth. And so these ideas and concepts are the vehicle by, by means of which you attend to the object, which isn't here right now. Right? And so... When the attention is focused on the object, then, of course, the attention is not focused on the thought about the object. Right? So when you're caught up in rumination, the, the attention is wandering here and there to the referent of the one thought after another. And while that's happening, you may very well be unaware of the fact that you're thinking because you're focusing on that and that and that. Right? But then as soon as you kind of you snap to and you're aware of the thinking, then your attention, rather than focusing on, an, on the object of a thought, is suddenly focusing on the thought. And of course, that interrupts the flow. In fact, it may snuff it out because you're no longer, you know, it's, it's a total shift. It's a radical discontinuity. Right? So no wonder then that when, we're, when we become aware of thoughts, very often the very fact of becoming aware of them snuffs them out, terminates them, because they feed, they continue if I'm thinking about Carmen, I'm thinking about Carmen and Carmen and Carmen, and then I think, oh, I'm thinking about Carmen, then I'm no longer thinking about Carmen. As soon as I'm attending to, oh, those are thoughts about Carmen, the object of my attention now is the thought and not Carmen. Carmen's over there. She's another person. My thoughts in my mind, right? So that naturally breaks the continuity, right? Now, that could imply that, oh, that means we can never really be aware of thoughts because the attention is always on the referent of the thought, we now know that's not the case. And that is, you can be, if you're really still and very relaxed, then we know that. It's like looking into the night sky and seeing a meteor coming down. Or an image coming to mind. Roses, bananas, pine trees, walnuts. You know? And you're aware of them. So, it's a pretty fascinating area. That is, when I say walnuts, 
walnuts. And an image comes to mind, and you focus on the image, what I would suggest is that your awareness of the image and the occurrence of the image, when I say walnuts, some walnuts come to mind, that there's a simul simultaneity between the appearance of the image and your awareness of it. And as you visualize walnuts, 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 the appearance and your awareness of the appearance, the mental image of walnuts, are simultaneous. In other words, you're perceiving that image of walnuts in real time. Right? But then so often, if you're really thinking about walnuts, kind of caught up in daydreaming about walnuts, walnuts, and then suddenly you wake, oh, I was distracted again. Doggone those pernicious thoughts about walnuts, they get me every time. You know? As soon as you're aware that, oh, I was caught, caught up thinking about walnuts, that's retrospective. Because previously, we were just focusing on walnuts. And oh, I was thinking about walnuts. So, very subtle here. But now let's go just a little bit more. And that is, we certainly can observe thoughts. And no, there's no question we can observe images in the waking state, an image of a walnut, or images in dream state, where in real time, the appearance of the images in the dream and your awareness of them are simultaneous. But now, it's not only objective appearances that arise to our minds when we're settling the mind in its natural state, observing the space of the mind and its contents. There are also these subjective impulses. So just as if I'm thinking about walnuts, then, and I'm identifying with that thought, I'm thinking about walnuts, then the referent is that, and then retrospectively I'm aware of, oh, I was thinking about that. Well, how about I want some walnuts. I desire some walnuts. You're just sitting there and suddenly get this great craving for walnuts. Well, when the desire is arising, once again, it has a referent. And what you're focusing on when that desire is there is, oh, I wish I had some walnuts. Right? And then you click to and say, oh, I see that was, that was a mental event. That was a desire. By the time you're aware of the desire, you're no longer thinking about walnuts, so you're aware of, your awareness of the desire is retrospective. It was just there, but the, the desire was occurring when you're thinking about a walnut, right? But then when you're, th when you're attending to the desire, you're no longer thinking about walnuts, which means that desire for walnuts is now past tense. You've terminated it just by shifting your focus. Right? Now, let's imagine, I'm going to be silly here, Let's imagine that somebody dropped a bag of walnuts on my head and gave me really a concussion. And therefore, I just hate walnuts. So some real aversion, some strong emotion arises. Walnuts, they're really a bang on the head. Can't stand those things. Those hard nuts, those shells. Really, that was painful. I hate walnuts. And so now it's not, just, it's a, not a desire. It's an emotion of aversion, of dislike. Maybe anger, resentment against walnuts and walnut bearers of the world. You know? And so when I'm resentfully thinking about the person who dropped the walnuts on my head, then the focus is on that person, that act, and there's this version, re resentment, perhaps anger, oh, I wish he hadn't done that, he should never do that. And then I'm aware of, oh, anger, resentment, like that. By the time I'm aware of the anger and resentment, it's gone. Because it gets fed by attending to walnuts and the people who drop walnuts on your head. So once again, this observer participancy, as soon as you're aware of the aversion, 
the aversion was fed by attending to the object of aversion, but when you're attending to the aversion, then aversion ceases. It's about emotions, other kind of emotions. If you're really sad about something, not all emotions have a clear reference. Sometimes you just feel blue, feel kind of depressed. So what are you depressed about? I don't know, I just feel depressed. But sometimes we're unhappy about something. Something made us sad. Okay? We're happy. Let's say sad this time. So something made us sad. Let on anger, but just, oh, I'm so sad that it's raining today. I wanted to go to the beach and listen to that rain. Oh, oh. It's such a sad sound. It's like the whole sky is crying. <laughs> Makes me want to cry too. Rain inside, rain outside. <laughs> Symmetry of the macrocosm and the microcosm. The world is awash in tears. And as I listen to the rain, it just makes me want to weep. And then I'm aware of my sadness. Because it has a referent, that rain makes me feel so sad. And then as soon as I'm aware of the sadness, it's gone. Because it's being fed by rain makes me sad, rain makes me sad. It's so wet. And then I'm just aware of the sadness. And then the reference of the sadness is no longer feeding the sadness, so it's terminated. Likewise, something makes you really happy. Think of a, a child. Think of a, a beloved pet who's there eagerly waiting for you to come home. Wag, 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 wag. You know? Oh, can't wait to see you. Makes me so happy. And then you're aware of the happiness. It's terminated. So retrospective awareness. So without further ado, Let's go to the practice this time, and I'm front-loading it so I'll speak very little during the session. But now, as we've seen, in order to kind of really get on track, get into the flow of the settling the mind is natural state, then we want to have that continuity of the attention, focus on the space of the mind, whatever comes up. But again, if we sometimes find we're just getting caught up again and again, getting frustrated, we're not doing it correctly, or we're just getting spaced out, diffused, not quite knowing what to look at, not quite in the flow yet. And as I've mentioned before, you can deliberately generate an image that's taking place in the space of mind. You're in the right domain. Generate a discursive thought. That's in the right domain, right? And then you just let it, let it go, and then you keep right where you were. But also, we can generate a, a subjective impulse, like a desire or something. Just think of something you'd really like. Could be anything. Something in Dharma, some, some kind of dessert to see a loved one, and so forth and so on, but generate that object of desire and then let the desire come up. Right? And then observe the desire. That's also taking place, taking place in the space of the mind. So you can deliberately generate when you're sitting there with no desire and say, okay, I want to generate a desire. Oh, there it comes. And then observe it. And then watch the impact of observing it. Likewise, an emotion. It could be fear, it could be happiness, sadness, really whatever you like. But you, we can deliberately generate emotions. I think that can't be doubted. You're not angry right now? Think about something that really pisses you off. Oh, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Thanks for reminding me, Alan. <laughs> yeah, that really does piss me off. And then observe the resentment, the anger, the aggression that comes up. And then watch what happens to it when you observe it. Okay? So in short, 
as we're observing the space of the mind and its contents, specifically the contents, to my mind it's very, very clear that some of the contents we can observe in real time. That is, in real time means as they are appearing, so we are ascertaining in the same moment. So an image of a peach. The image comes to mind, I'm aware of it simultaneously. Right? Mary had a little lamb, discursive thought. It's there, I'm getting it right when it's coming up. Syllable by syllable, Mary had a little lamb. I'm getting it right there in real time. Right? But there's another whole range of mental events that we're getting only retrospectively. Because they have their own reference. I desire that, I'm thinking about that, I'm feeling emotion about that. And these thoughts, desires, emotions are rising from moment to moment to moment relative to their object. I want that, I'm angry about that, I'm sad about that, I'm disappointed at that, and so forth. And that flow of the desire, the emotion, the feeling continues to arise as long as it's being fed, almost like a baby that's getting spoon-fed, spoon-fed, spoon-fed. You know? It keeps on rising as long as you're focusing on the referent. But as soon as you disengage from that referent and focus on the subjective impulse, well, number one, the desire, the emotion of which you are aware, just a little bit, little bit late, retrospective, not in real time. So watch the impact of the observer participant on events that are taking place in real time and watch the effect of, of the act of observation on events that are retrospective. That is, you're aware of the desire that was just there, the emotion that was just there, the line of thought that was just there, but then you were aware of it, and then suddenly it got startled and vanished. Okay? Interesting, isn't it? Okay. Welcome to your mind. In terms of the impact of the observer participant on experience, observe the impact on your experience of the body when you direct your awareness to it. Settling your body in its natural state. Observe the effect on your respiration when you observe it passively. But nevertheless, you are observing it, releasing it into its own natural rhythm.
settle your mind in its natural state, getting into the flow of resting awareness in its own place, releasing all grasping, and simply being present without distraction, maintaining an unwavering flow of mindfulness of the present moment. before you direct it to any particular object. Now, in order to calm the obsessive-compulsive flow of thinking for a little while, a few minutes, let's practice mindfulness of breathing, focusing either on the sensations of the breath throughout the entire body, focusing on the sensations at the apertures of the nostrils, with counting, if you find it helpful, or without.
And with your eyes at least partially open, your gaze resting vacantly in the space in front of you, you can go pointedly focus your attention on the space of the mind and whatever arises within it. may experiment by deliberately generating a thought, an image, a desire, and an emotion. And watch what happens when you observe them. What's the impact of the very act of observation itself? You've entered the gateway of this practice when you can clearly distinguish between the stillness and the movements of the mind, the stillness of the space of the mind, the movements of activities, images, desires, emotions that arise within the mind. And you've entered the gateway of the practice when you can distinguish between the stillness of your own awareness and the movements of the mind.
entered the path of this practice, when you experience the first of four types of mindfulness, called single-pointed mindfulness, and this occurs when you are simultaneously aware of the stillness of your own awareness and the movements of the mind. Let's continue practicing now in silence.
Oh, no, so. We have a few moments. Uh, are there any questions specifically about this practice? Points of clarification, or is it all crystal clear? And we head back and we'll do more practice. Good sign. Yes, go ahead. Valentina. Um, I'm a little bit confused because when I, um, I I try to pay attention to the space of the mind, um, sometimes I cannot differentiate between what is going on there in the space of the mind and what is going on in what I am perceiving with my ears or with my eyes. Right. It's not like a, I cannot feel different somehow. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. For each of the five physical senses, they have their own unique domains of experience. So in terms of visual perception, it's a visual field. The colors, the shapes that arise within it. For the auditory perception, the space of sound, sounds that arise within it, likewise for smell and taste and touch. And the Buddhist view is these are non-overlapping. You don't hear colors and so forth and so on. They, they reach one-on-one. -on -one, you know? Each one has its own unique and non-overlapping domain of experience. Right? That's the view. Um, and then we have mental perception or mental consciousness. And as I'm attending to you visually, so I'm, I'm, I'm picking up your form visually, and I heard your voice, so I was picking, up you, picking you up in terms of sound. Um, in both cases, I'm not only visually aware of your presence and auditorially aware of your presence, I'm also mentally aware of your presence. Because mental consciousness comes in and it's also aware of the appearances arising in the five physical domains. It's kind of obvious. But it's not only visual, it's also mental. Okay? I'm mentally aware of your presence right here. And so the immense, but um, whereas the, the visual is locked into visual, it can't take a little vacation and go off to the olfactory or to auditory and so forth. It just has to stay home. It can't go anywhere at all. Whereas mental, mental consciousness is sometimes likened to a monkey in a, in, a, in a house with six windows. And the monkey jumps from one window to another window to another window very, very rapidly. Because mental consciousness can, can focus on the visual. We can withdraw from that, go to the auditory, withdraw from that, go to the tactile, withdraw from that, go to the mental. And so it can, it can and does jump all over the place very frequently. And in the practice of shamatha, we're trying, in this particular practice of settling the mind, we're seeking to get it to stabilize among the six domains in which it can so easily and quickly hop. You know, We're trying to get it to stabilize as single-pointedly as possible in just the mental domain, because that's its own unique domain, just as the visual has its own unique domain, that is, no one else can encroach in there except for mental consciousness. Well, likewise, your thoughts, your images, your dreams, you can't see them with the eyes, you can't hear them with your ears, but mentally you can see and hear and so forth, but all of that taking place within uniquely mental domain. So it's on that domain that is uniquely mental that we're seeking to focus. But you're, you're I like your word confused, 
because the word confuse means to fuse together, right? To fuse together. And so since mental consciousness cannot only, cannot only stay home and just observe thoughts, images, memories, fantasies, emotions, desires, and so forth, it can stay home and just watch its own domain. But ever so easily, it goes and, slips, flips, uh, and flicks over to the auditory or the tactile or the visual or what have you. And since these are all within the domain of experience, then no wonder we confuse. And so we say, I'm not sure whether I saw that or did I, did I imagine it. Did you actually say that or did I only imagine you're saying that? You know? Because the awareness can be aware of it and it's purely mental, which means there was no outside input. You just imagined it. Or you're mentally aware of it and there was out, outside input and you were both, both visually aware of it and mentally aware of it. So no wonder we confuse. So you have a lot of company, right? Uh, and in the practice, then we simply keep on coming back seeking not to confuse, and, and just recognizing, oh yes, that is indeed a sound, my, my attention slipped off. So that's a type of distraction. So we, we're trying to maintain the mindfulness here without distraction, without grasping. The distraction of one kind, of course, is that while we're focusing on the space of the mind and its contents, a thought comes up, but then the thought comes up and catches us. And then, and then it takes us off to the reference of the thought, which is probably someplace else, and maybe in the past or maybe in the future, but it catches it, like, like catching us on a hook and reels us in and then we're focusing off on something else. That's a type of distraction. Where we're no longer focusing on the space of the mind and its contents, we're focusing on walnuts or something that's not in the space of the mind. I don't have any walnuts in my mind, only images of walnuts, right? So that's one type of distraction that we're seeking to release and release so that we're maintaining a constant flow, an unbroken flow of awareness of whatever's arising instantaneously right now in the present moment. Fresh, 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 all the way through fresh, right? No repeat performances. Nothing gets replicated. It's always fresh. A lot of similarities, certainly, but always fresh. So one type of distraction is where we're carried away from the space of the mind to the reference of thoughts. Okay, we all know about that. And another type of distraction is we hear a sound. And so we slip out of the unique space of the mind and we're off to the domain of sound. What's that sound? Oh, what's that sensation in my knee? Or maybe something, maybe there's a movement in the field of vision, and it catches our attention. And so instead of just having a, a gaze vacant, where we're really not attending there at all, uh, suddenly the, the attention is drawn down into the visual, because somebody moved or something like that. Right? So all of those are modes of distraction. And shamat is always selective. It's never open presence or just being, you know, whatever comes up. That's perfectly well to, welcome to do that, but that's not shamatha. And it's not vipassana either. Just to be aware of whatever's coming up, marmots do that. You know, you know. I think a lot of, uh, how do you say, animals, especially animals that are a prey, like rabbits, I think they must be very good at that. What's going to eat me next? Moment to moment, rabbit away. To think that's Vipassana, that would make rabbits some of the most accomplished Vipassana matter, you know, masters in the world. They're very aware, moment to moment. Multimodal. What's going to eat me? I know it's going to come, I know it's out there, and it really wants me for lunch. You know, moment to moment, open awareness. Very cool. Not Vipassana, not Shamatha, not Dzogchen, not Mahamudra. Bunny awareness. You know? So that's not Shamatha. 
Some of it is always selective. But bear in mind it can be selective to a whole domain. Sometimes false, incredibly false dichotomies are created between samadhi and mindfulness. As if, as if mind, this is all made up. Just people make it up out of nothing because there's no basis for this in Buddhism at all. But contrasting mindfulness, which is open and spacious and so forth, as versus samadhi, which is somehow supposed to be tunnel vision and really tight and concentrated. Completely false dichotomy. People just make that up out of nothing. And then, and then one person says it, and like one dog barking and a lot of other dogs just darking, barking because there's the first bark, dog bark. Then a lot of people start saying it with no basis at all. But he said it. Yeah, I know. Well, he said it. Oh, you mean it's not true? No, it's just a bunch of dog barking. You know? So samadhi can be, of course, focused on something very tiny, like focusing on a seed syllable inside your heart. You know? you know about that. Or a little pearl of light in your heart. Well, that's very, very tightly focused. But also samadhi can be all sentient beings. When you're when entering into the samadhi of mitta bhavana, the cultivation of loving kindness, who are you attending to if you really go supernova in that practice? May all beings find happiness in the causes of happiness. And the object of, of your samadhi is all beings. That's not exactly myopic. Right? So samadhi may be very tight, it may be very vast, it may be focusing on something relatively stable or something in a constant, a constant state of flux. It may be focusing on the space of the mind. And how big is that? You know? And whatever arises and passes, rises and passes within it, that's still samadhi. Right? It's a focus of mindfulness. So, Shamat is always selective. It's focusing on something, which means it's not focusing on anything outside of that, unless it just slips into a distraction. Okay? So it's just more practice. Just more practice. And avoiding confusion. Right? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's all. Anything else quickly? Okay, you got it. I'll go. Um, similarly to um, what Valentin said, um, my confusion is um, when I observe something arising in my mind, yeah. there is such a fine line between observing and fusing with it and going with it. And right. sometimes it's very hard to distinguish, am I really observing or I'm already caught up in it? Yeah. The, fi the, fine, the fine line is there, but it's a very clear line. And here's how to distinguish it. And that is, number number one, I want to say, as I mentioned earlier, I think, to, maybe to Lisette, there's this subtle continuum of grasping. So that's not just yes or no, that's just how much, you know? Even after you've achieved shamatha, and you're resting in the substrate consciousness, there's still a subtle current of grasping. So that, that's not easily eradicated, but it's very, very subtle. So, but now here we can draw a fairly sharp distinction. And that is, so I'll take an image of, uh, uh, image of my mother. She's still alive. So an image of my mother, and she comes up, as she is right now, an image of my mother coming to mind. I'm attending that image in real time. That image exists only in the space of my mind, right? not outside. And then I slip now very deliberately into practicing loving kindness for my mother, who is 8,000 miles away, living in a home for the elderly with my father. And I'm attending to her the mother who brought me up and has looked after me for 63 years. Uh, that's very different, right? One is attending to the person who, in, in this case, is alive, far away. You know, I have a long history. And the other one is attending to an image. And that image can come after she's passed away. It can come up just as easily then as it is when she's alive, right? And so it's simply a, it's a sharp line. 
And that is, are you attending to what is arising right now, moment by moment in the space of your mind, which is here and now, or have you slipped off to the reference of that thought, that image, what have you, which is not simply some event taking place in the space of your mind. It's something you know, either doesn't exist at all, like unicorns, or, as far as I know, or it could be someone who's passed away. One of the most ironic things is getting angry at somebody who's already dead. You know, in the Buddhist view, the chances are they've already taken rebirth. Maybe as the person sitting next to you. You know, if they died, you know, some time ago, and you say, "Oh, but that what that person did 40 years ago? That was so. I hate that person." And here the person is right next to you, you know, giving you a massage. <laughs> uh, it's really bizarre to feel anger at people who are dead, because. The object of your anger really exists nowhere at all anymore. Okay? Is that clear? It's a sharp distinction. Now, to get it experientially, okay, that takes some work. But, it, but here's another way of looking at it experientially, and that when, you're, when your awareness moves, that's when you're grasping. When your awareness moves. So this is why it's so important, just as in the earlier theme of can you recognize genuine happiness? Do you know from your own experience clearly and distinctly difference between genuine happiness and stimulus-driven hedonic pleasure. If you don't know the distinction, if it's kind of conceptual, but you don't really know what it's about, then that's not a useful concept for you. That's really important, because Dharma is all about really developing genuine happiness and not just getting more hedonic pleasure, right? So getting that and seeing that it really can be cultivated, and then exploring what are the actual causes of genuine happiness. Well, but you might need to draw a sharp line, a clear distinction between hedonic and genuine or authentic. And it's not just one is good or bad, but they really are different, right? And likewise here, a sharp line, a sharp line of your awareness hovering, free of grasping, like, again, like a, like a kestrel kiting in, the, kiting in the wind, just floating there, holding onto nothing, not moving. And a thought comes up and it goes. Memory comes up and goes. An image comes up and goes. And you're aware of it. You discern it. You recognize it. But you're not dragged off your chair, okay? Awareness does not move from its own place. Whereas soon as we attend to the referent, then awareness is launched. It's like, a, like an arrow shot from, a, shot from a bow. It leaves its own place, and it's now attending to the referent of that thought, by w that referent of the thought, by way of the thought. So it's moved, right? So this is really sustaining, essentially, this flow of, of non-grasping. But now the, the, the challenge there is to sustain the flow of non-grasping without losing clarity. Because if I'm, if I'm, what really brings a lot of clarity is mental afflictions, at least some of them. If I'm really craving something, oh, I'm really clear, oh, I want that. Especially anger. If I'm angry at something, oh, a lot of clarity comes up. I really know what I'm angry about. Bum, bum, bum. And I tell you, I'm so angry at that person, right? But when we're not angry about anything, not craving anything, not mentally engaged with anything conceptually, and we release all grasping, then it's very easy just to go, hmm, you know, like a blood ovale. Because by and large, our knowing is saturated by conceptualization. Right? And we're not, when we're not conceiving, especially if we're not looking at something, by just resting in the space of the mind, then it's very easy to lose, lose clarity and lose cognizance.
So this is very strongly emphasized by really actually all four schools of Tibetan Buddhism. If your practice is just sitting there and not thinking anything, then you're not meditating. You are cultivating stupor. You're cultivating stupor. If you're not knowing anything, just, oh, I'm so peaceful. I'm just sitting here with no thought at all. Now I'm like not only like a bunny, but I'm like a dumb bunny. And I'm cultivating stupor. Cultivating, cultivating. Good, now I'm stupid. Because that's the culmination of stupor. And that's a really sorry excuse for meditation. Okay? Buddhist view, you're cultivating rebirth for, you know, as an animal. So this is something really quite subtle. To be able to release all conceptualization as much as possible, to release all grasping, and yet maintain a clear flow of cognizance. Okay? So that's where we're going this afternoon. We keep on upping the ante a little bit, raising the stakes for this practice. And this afternoon where we'll go uh, and linger for a few days to the end of this week is being able to attend to what, is, what remains in the space of the mind when you can't detect any distinct thought, image, memory, no content. It's called javana in Pali. Javana are the activities of the mind. No movements, movements. And as you're attending to the space of the mind and its contents, when you can't see any contents at all, you say, I'm looking, and I'm getting nothing. That's a very easy time to space out, to lose clarity and to lose cognizance, and then just sit there like a dumb bunny, like just like that. And then you're cultivating stupor. And so to be able to sustain the flow of cognizance and the flow of clarity, when you have very little to work with, but it's not nothing, and that's where we'll go this afternoon, to be able to maintain, at least for a few seconds at a time, a flow of cognizance, of knowing, of ascertaining the vacuity of the space of the mind, and actually know it, and know that it's not sitting there not knowing anything, it's sitting there knowing the space of the mind, which has qualities. Nothing doesn't have any qualities. Something that doesn't exist has no qualities at all. But the space of the mind has qualities, therefore it, it does exist, therefore it can be ascertained. Uh, and it's most easily ascertained when it has no competition, when there's no noise, when there's no activity to catch you there. It's just kind of what's left over, what remains after thoughts, images have subsided, and that's what's left. So, roll up our sleeves. That'll be for this afternoon, right now. Enjoy your break, and I'll see you at 4.30.